Welcome to the Perimenopause Power Podcast. We are Lisa and Natalie, two certified holistic health coaches passionate about helping women embrace their physiology to elevate their highest potential for confidence, health and energy. Perimenopause will be unique to you and each episode gives you the power in knowing that you can define your own journey. Let's get into today's episode. Well, hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Perimenopause Power. Hope you are well. How are you, Lisa? I'm fabulous. Thank you very much, Natalie. Hope you are too. I am good and excellent to hear. And we have a wonderful guest on again, a returning guest, our first returning guest, Dr. Fatima Khan. Hello, Dr. Fatima. Hi, Natalie and Lisa. Thank you for having me again. It's always a pleasure being here. Oh, we're thrilled to have you and, you know, we just talk your, <laughs> everything that you do, we just, you know, we mention you so frequently because we just feel so aligned with, you know, the work that you do, but also your passion and, you know, and your broad take on supporting women through menopause. So we're thrilled to have you here for a second time. Wonderful. I'm glad that we can all share our knowledge and I think this is a great platform to bring different professionals and just share expertise so we can actually keep on doing what we love doing which is helping women to live their best life absolutely and I'll just uh, share for anyone who missed our last episode you last appeared on our podcast on the 23rd of May and we had a really great conversation about you know perimenopause and menopause and and the things that we see women struggling with as well as offering some support and ideas on how they can support themselves through this phase and we spoke a little bit about MHT or HRT in that conversation and it's a topic that comes up frequently and given that you are you know a highly skilled perimenopause and menopause specialist we thought what a perfect opportunity to bring you back on and really just have that in-depth chat about probably the most common solution that women look for when it comes to perimenopause and menopause and you are based out of Agora Specialist Centre in Melbourne and how lucky we are to have you in our state and you actively educate women on menopause awareness through your social media platform which we have just been loving your posts and all the information that you're sharing and you know we look forward to having this really great conversation. Wonderful well let's start so I guess um, so my expertise is um, I'm a medical doctor who prescribes HRT. So that's that's what I do. But I have uh, my value system is all about supporting the whole body because hormone therapy is just one component. And if you don't address all the other aspects, which we've talked about, the nutrition, the movement, which you guys do a fantastic job and offer lots of support, um, is fundamental to any kind of um, health transition that woman is going to experience. And there's lots of reproductive challenges that we have in our fertility, then antenatally, postnatally, and menopause is one that there's multiple challenges because there's lack of awareness. A lot of women don't um, understand the symptoms. And then a lot of healthcare professionals don't necessarily have the education or the resources to support women. So, um, and I think this is why this podcast and, and the programs you offer and the support we offer women is vital to create that awareness and support. So menopause is a natural transition. The average age is 51. And the perimenopause is a time that precedes this. It's around the menopause. And that can start 
even up 10 years before in some women. And we know that those changes are more due to the volatility and fluctuation of hormones. So it's important to realize that women are transitioning from the early 40s and then the whole period can last a decade or decade and a half. And so you've got to really look at the woman and understand what her core needs are and understand what the management options are. So for some women, they can have non-hormonal therapy, um, which tends to be pharmaceutical grade. So there are medications that they can go to their doctor and they can prescribe those. And they're very effective at treating things like the hot flushes or the night sweats or the insomnia, um, and then also things like the mood disturbance. And then you've got um, hormone therapy, which is where replacing the hormones in form of estrogen, progesterone and testosterone for some women. And then you have complementary therapies, which are acupuncture, hypnotherapy, and there's a lot of effective things. And then everyone should be following their lifestyle measures, which are nutrition, movement, stress management. So I think it's important to understand there's a there's a big um, kind of an umbrella that we like to have, knowing that women have all these options. There's lots of tools in the box. So we'll focus just on menopause hormone therapy. So conventionally, it's been called hormone replacement therapy. Um, and that's now changed to MHT. So we call it menopause hormone therapy just because HRT, since the Women's Health Initiative in 2002, has got a lot of negative connotations, specifically around breast cancer risk and blood clot risks such as stroke. And so a lot of women were um, taking these medications um, for quality of life purposes and some prevention and chronic illnesses. However, that um, uptake was dramatically dropped and now it comes back in full circle. So I would say a lot of women are using it when they need to use it. And the difference then was from the study that it showed that the hormone therapy use, which was Premarin, so that's conjugated equine estrogen, uh, came in a tablet form and they had Provera, which is medroxy um, progesterone acetate, and that's essentially synthetic progestogen. And so whenever we're going to use synthetic hormones in that combination, which we don't use now as part of HRT, there was a slight increased risk of breast cancer and blood clot risk. Now you have to break it down a bit further. So you had two arms in the studies. So you had women who had um, a hysterectomy done, so that's removal of your uterus, and they were taking Premarin only. And then you had women who had a uterus and they were taking Premarin and Provera uh, because we need a progestogen to protect the lining of the womb. And so actually they've done a follow-up study, 20-year follow-up study of the women who've had the hysterectomy done, have taken estrogen only HRT, and actually that's not shown an increased risk in breast cancer. If anything, there was a reduction in breast cancer risk in the estrogen only arm. Um, if you combine it with the um, HRT that's got the synthetic progestogen in it, and particularly the Provera, that was shown in a slight increased risk, and that risk is there after three to five years of use, over the age of 50. Um, since then, we've had other studies called the E3N, which is a French study, and they've been using something called micronized progesterone and doing a lot of uh, work around, um, hang on, so estrogen only, the women who are taking, have had a hysterectomy, they seem to be fine, and their risk is actually reduced, 
Um, and we know that even those women, we have a one in seven risk of getting breast cancer. So the woman who got breast cancer or taking estrogen had a better prognosis. So they basically had a longer life expectancy compared to someone who didn't. So there's some benefits there, but you also have to address what is it that's causing the increase in breast cancer. And we think it's the progestogen. So there's a lot of research done around the combined HRT. And now we use something called micronized progesterone, which has been used in IVF. And we've been using it uh, to prevent preterm birth in pregnant women. And it's essentially plant extracted. Um, and when we use that combined with estrogen, um, there is no increased risk of breast cancer seen in studies up to eight years. And after that, it's most likely to be uh, low or negligible. So I think the reassuring thing now is that you can take estrogen and progesterone as long as they come in their natural forms. Um, and when we say natural, listen, they're all made in a laboratory. So they're created uh, in a sterile environment. They're, they're still pharmaceutical grade, but the molecular structure is the same as natural estrogen, natural progesterone. So now we use estrogen in a form of a patch, gel and tablet, and they're estradiol. So that's the same molecule as your own body. And we use micronized progesterone, which is progesterone, it comes in a capsule and we use that. Um, and that's essentially body identical, it's licensed and it's available widely. Um, and a lot of women tolerate it really well. So you, we can safely tell women that this is the safest formulation to take. It's not going to further increase your risk. But whenever I talk about breast cancer, I say we've got one in seven risk of developing breast cancer. That risk is increased if you're sedentary, if you're not exercising, if you're overweight, if you're drinking or smoking. So it's important to realize those significantly increase your risk of breast cancer after 50. Estrogen alone and estrogen with natural progesterone is neutral on the breast, but you've got to look at all the other aspects as well. And you still have a one in seven risk of breast cancer. The other risk is the blood clot risk. And that was seen in women. Um, you've got to understand the Women's Health Initiative wasn't the best mm. study when it comes down to looking at the benefits of HRT. Because prior to that, there were lots of other studies showing that when you give HRT around the time of menopause, it's very safe to give because you literally already have quite high circulating hormones and you're just continuing that. But the WHI was there for prevention of long-term diseases such as cardiovascular disease and osteoporosis. And so a lot of the women, the average age was 63.5, I think. So they're already, some of them were, a decade after, some of them were had risk factors such as they were overweight, they had established heart disease. So a lot of them started HRT after a decade. And we found that when we gave them oral estrogen tablets, it goes through the liver and something called first pass metabolism. And that can in some women activate clotting factors. So when I bypass the liver and we give estrogen through the skin as a gel and patch and that's safe. So in a nutshell, we've learned a lot over the last two decades and what we use now is not what we used to use before. And I say it's the same thing when you have telephones, um, you know, mobile phones that we had 20 years ago, we have completely different. So we, and even with medicine, how we used to manage diabetes 20 years ago, we don't manage it now. So medicine and science and technology keep evolving, but somehow we're still stuck with this big study and the fear of HRT. So they've tried to change the name to menopause hormone therapy to make it slightly different and also get the message across that there are other safer alternatives which are equally effective. Um, 
The second question I get asked is how long can I stay for on this? Um, and there was a guidance about five years and it was from the study because we found that up to five years, women were fine. And when I used to prescribe it about a decade ago, we used to say to women, okay, well, you can stay on it safely till three years and we can encourage you to come off it between three and five years. Well, that was with the combined synthetic HRT, which we don't use now. So the guidance now from all the guidelines, um, international menopause guidelines are that you can stay on it for as long as you need to. Is that because you know, it's a phase, it's a transition that we're going through. So ideally, you, you've, you've been on it, you started at a time where you're experiencing these symptoms or whatever, and then sort of five years down the track, the thought process is that you've probably got through that transition and then just do you slowly come off it? Or is that the thinking behind it, Fatima? No, so the original thinking was to reduce the risk of breast cancer. So we would just give it for five years max yeah. and say, okay, after five years, the risk of two, we'll give it to you for now, but we want to stop it after five years. Okay. Um, so that was the main uh, reason. However, we know the symptoms last anything from seven to eight years on average. And we also know that 30% of those women will have severe symptoms. And when they stop it, they just uh, won't be able to function. And so how do you, I guess the question is, how do you assess who needs it? Mm. How do you assess how long you stay on it for? So my question always is, okay, is this stopping you from functioning? Yeah. And what do I mean by that? Is this stopping you from doing the things that you love doing? Is this interfering with your ability to function emotionally, physically at work? If you're finding the forgetfulness, the word finding difficulties impacting your work that you're now having to resign or leave your work. So that's an important thing, because that's something mm -hmm. affecting your quality of life significantly that you're having to change your career. Is this impacting your relationship? You know, some of the symptoms that we don't talk about are such as low libido, vaginal dryness, um, and there's a whole host of other symptoms. You know, there are things we can do to help them. It's important to also focus on the woman's own ability to it's not about other people I guess it's not just the work and relationships it's how she's feeling within herself mm. if you're feeling your mood is so low that you know life isn't worth continuing I mean clearly we've left it too late so the menopause and the mental health is something that's least discussed we never talk about it it's always about oh hot flushes night sweat not sleeping oh you can put up with that with a bit of fan and I would say 70% of the debilitating Symptoms are the mental health symptoms, so the anxiety, the low mood, the irritability, the forgetfulness, the lack of confidence, the low self-esteem, the self-doubt. All of a sudden, I'll have women saying, oh, I've been doing this for 20 years and I can't make any decision anymore. Yeah. And that's really important. You know, you've you've got to a point in your life where this is when you should be shining and a little bit of extra support. And this is exactly when you want to use HRT, when it's impacting your functioning. So that's the question you should ask. And I also say the benefits, you have to look at it with two goals. So there's short-term goal of eliminating your symptoms so you can function in everyday life. And then there's also long-term function um, benefits. We know you um, reduce bone loss and prevent against osteoporosis, along with strength training and good vitamin D intake and calcium to the diet. So it's not just HRT, you fix it. You've got to do all the other things. Mm. There's lots of women who take estrogen and get osteoporosis. You've got to do the strength training. We know when we um, train muscle, we train, we improve bone density. Um, and then there is, you know, 
some studies have shown that the reduction in um, risk of um, death from heart disease and also some improvement in cognitive decline. We can't really advocate it for pre prevention of Alzheimer's or dementia, but we know that Alzheimer's is common more in women than men. It's the main cause of death for women in Australia. And estrogen plays a role, but it's so multifactorial. You know, there's genetic predisposition, diet, exercise, stress. So just taking estrogen is not going to prevent against it, but maybe in future we'll advocate to use. Mm. Wow. Yeah, such... Such valuable, <laughs> I was just going to say such valuable insights. And, you know, I think the greatest message that I get from that is, and I, and I think there's a lot of conditioning too, is that we always want to try and fix the problem whilst we're in the situation and that's it and just think about today. But there is so many long-term opportunities, isn't there, for that longevity, for that sustainable life to not just fix your symptoms today, but think about 10, 20, 30 years because we're living 40 years past that, you know, one day of menopause. And I think that's, you know, really such a key message that, yeah, get the support while you feel like you're not functioning and not living your best life. But then what do you do in conjunction with that so that you can, keep those other long-term chronic illnesses or diseases at bay as well. That's sort of the key message I took mm. from that. I think it's important to realise that the life, average life expectancy for women in Australia is, I think, 84.9 years. So menopause is on average 50. So you've got 40 years after that. And the decline in estrogen does predispose women to the metabolic syndrome. So your cholesterol goes up, blood pressure goes up the weight shifts around the tummy, and that puts us at risk of diabetes, heart disease, which is a second, heart disease being the second killer of women in Australia. Um, and along with that, you tend to become isolated. Kids have left, you might have left, their left your job, you're not socialising as much because you're feeling a bit low in mood, and that social withdrawal is then, we know, is a big problem and a, may, a, one of the reasons of developing cognitive decline in Alzheimer's as well. So you can see how everything is kind of working against you. So I always say to women, if you're struggling and if this is impacting your ability to socialize and exercise and move and go out for coffee with a friend, then, you know, asking for a bit of help, there's no shame in that. There's a lot of polarized views at the moment. You know, it's either HRT or no HRT. And I don't think it's that. I think it's it's basically a bit of a spectrum. Some 30% of women will need it because their symptoms are severe. 30% of women will never get any symptoms. So I have patients who are like, I've never had a hot flush. My mum's sister didn't even know what that means. She just sailed through it. Um, and then you have some women in between who struggle, but that's because I think they haven't looked at the fundamentals of their, what else is driving. And it mm. tends to be the excessive stress use, using alcohol, as a crutch to alleviate the anxiety short term, um, which is so easy because I've had a really busy day, stressed, running, running, because a lot of these women are between 45 to 55. And remember, most of my patients now will have three kids under the age of 10 at 48. So 50 does not mean, oh, retired, I'm going on a cruise, which is what the case was when I was growing up. Yeah. They would have kids in their 20s by 45. They're on a cruise, relaxing, retired on the holiday home. So you have you have to adjust your management approach to the women who are in front of you. And our demographic, they're more mature moms. I like to not call them older moms. I call them their more mature and wise moms. They've had kids in their late 30, early 40s. So, you know, if you're 48 going through hot crushes, skipping periods, and you can't sleep, and you're 
general mood threshold is very low and you need support because that's going to burn that individual out. She's got a lot on her plate. She's a full-time mom, trying to work full-time, trying to deal with everything else. So I always say this is the time you need something um, which will allow you to then do the exercise and look after, have the energy to cook and clean and do all the things you need to do. So I think it needs to be an individual approach um, in conjunction with looking at all the lifestyle things, which is what you guys focus on and keep reminding women. And, and so how long How long would you go? How long would you stay on it for? I mean, obviously it's a very individual choice, but is there a, a guideline or is there some thoughts around that, Fatima? So the guidelines you can stay on for as long as the benefits for you outweigh the risks. So mm. what does that mean? If you're taking something that's improving your mental health, your physical health, your emotional health, your long-term health, and you don't, you're not at risk of developing things like breast cancer and clots and other things from it, which really the only really risk at the moment, the clot risk is not going to be there if you're using transdermal estrogen. So the only thing is the breast cancer risk, which we know you're going to get one in seven and the safer types will not increase that. So I have an annual review with my patients and I try and optimize the other parameters, make sure their weight is coming down. So I support in their weight management goal. I make sure that they're having at least five alcohol-free days a week, making sure that they're using, um, making sure they're definitely not smoking, not just for um, the risk of breast cancer, but smoking is linked to oral cancer, colorectal, there's like a list of cancers. So, you know, over the age of 50, you want to look at longevity. How do we prevent chronic illnesses? Because there's no cure for a lot of these illnesses. Um, so I think it comes back to supporting women and uh, looking at the parameters of the blood pressure, what's happening with the diabetes. But my experience is when I've supported women with a bit of hormone therapy, it allows them to exercise. It allows them to self-care because they're feeling great about themselves. They've got their confidence back. They have the energy back. Their mental health has improved. And, you know, they learn to reprioritize what's important, reevaluate what they want to put their energy into and find this kind of new passion for life almost, looking forward. And I always say this is a time of, of actually... You know, we when we go into our 30s, we never look at, oh, this is what I used to do in my 20s. We kind of adapt after children. We're going to change. We're not going to be going out for those late nights. And But the problem is when we're going from 40 to 50s, it's almost like we compare ourselves to, oh, I used to be able to do this. I used to be able to do that. Because there's no um, manual to say, actually, you're not meant to be doing all of these things. So I normally say to them, leave the old you behind. Find a new norm in the present, which is what you can do and can't do, and accept that and be comfortable with it. And then you'll reestablish what the new norm is going forward. Oh, I love so, that. And I think it's important. I've had to do that with myself. You know, I keep beating myself about, I used to be able to do this. I literally used to be able to like run like a headless chicken for 14 hours a day. Well, I can't do that now. <laughs> and so there's a lot of inner voice criticism that comes and say, well, hang on, you're being lazy. You know, you could be doing this. What's wrong? Get up from the couch, do this. And actually, no, I have to listen to my kind of inner intuition and be like, no, I'm overwhelming my system. And we all have individual stress thresholds. I remember between 40 and 45, we get more of it. You might be moving a house like I've done over the last eight weeks. You might have, you know, caregiving for an elderly parent or family member. And then you have, you know, teenage kids, which are emotionally very demanding. They might not be a toddler. Uh, but so you've just got to be available for all of those things, but also it's time to be available for your needs, which are new and accepting that 
it's okay to, I don't, I wouldn't say you need to slow down. I think it's about quality over quantity. So before you're probably doing 20 things a day to now I do 10 things, which really are important. The other things I'll probably reprioritize or delegate or maybe not do them. Mm. Mm. That's so, so much bold there. Yeah, so true. And I was just thinking, you know, when women have babies and we've got that little baby that everybody can see, there's an acceptance there that you will go slow, that you're not going to be out, you're not going to be running around like you were, but you've got this little baby. But then as you get older, and what what we're highlighting is that gap in education and awareness around what changes in that 40 to 50 age bracket. So we haven't got that little baby anymore. And in ourselves, we're thinking, well, the kids are older, I've got more time, I should be able to do more or go back to where I was when I was in my 20s. And there's that societal expectation, well, you haven't got the baby anymore. And you know, get back to working five days a week 60 hour weeks what are you complaining about so it just highlights that yeah there's that perception because we can't see what's going on and we don't really know we haven't got that education you know there's that we have that pressure on ourselves I should be able to do what I used to do for sure it's interesting you say that because I think recently they've just said um so for women there's three reproductive stages which are um window of vulnerability from them so it's puberty, it's pregnancy, and it's menopause. And so when you know that this is a window, of, they're vulnerable to um, their mental health and physical health can be impacted. I think there's a lot more support and acceptance around that. And as you said, I actually, it's interesting, I say this in my clinic a lot, and I say, when you get pregnant, you accept that you're going to get a big belly, there'll be stretch marks, and you speak to your body so beautifully. You speak to your belly, everyone around you appreciates that. No one, there's no negative criticism about that change in the body. But when it comes to menopause, we will get weight changes and our body will change, but there is such negative body image and body dysmorphia almost. It's like, I hate my body. And they're over-exercising, they're dieting, which are both forms of stresses mm. on the body, which makes the whole thing worse. Let's not even talk about that. So it's because they don't understand What's happening to the body? So if you teach women, this is a natural adaptation of the fat cells going around the tummy because that's the source of estrogen. When you're naturally navigating, we use estrogen from the adrenal glands, which produce a bit of estrogen, so you don't get those severe hot flushes, night sweats. And then also the fat cells around the tummy can produce be a source of estrogen. But the problem is we're we're reaching menopause with burnt adrenals, and I don't I don't use the word adrenal fatigue because I don't that's a different thing and I don't agree with that but we all know we have adrenal glands and we all know they're sources of estrogen and 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 produce cortisol but if burnt out means that you use all your reserve so you have a very low threshold to then develop the more uh, severe symptoms of menopause if you're reaching menopause with an empty bucket essentially which is a lot of women now because in our early 40s you've, you've got peak of their careers full-time uh, home life, which is demanding in all aspects. So I think it's acknowledging that and then saying, okay, I'm not going to slow down, but I'm really going to prioritize what I'm going to focus to give my energy to. I also find my emotional energy is reduced. You know, what I could take before, now I'm like, nope, can't take any more in my day anymore. Um, and I think you've got to be really boundaried about it. So as before, I would say yes, yes, yes to everything around me. But I can't do that now. I have to be mindful of 
my needs. So if I'm not looking after my needs and filling my bucket, I can't look after the people around me, especially my patients. So I think it's about finding your new norm by establishing newer boundaries. I mean, I didn't even know how to do this, but clearly I've just gone around and said, no, this is what I am going to do. This is what I'm going to say no to. So before it was like, yeah, put it all in my plate. I can deal with it all. But actually, I can't do that now. And it doesn't make me any less superwoman. I don't even like that phrase or perfectionist because there's no such thing. But this is who I am now. This is my new norm. And I'm going to look forward to celebrating that rather than beating myself about how I used to be and what I could do. I'm sitting here just nodding my head because there's so many, there's so much more gold there too. And, you know, that whole weight thing is, um, you know, when we explain to clients around why it is that your body does, you know, change its weight um, through this phase, it's actually a protective quality that, you know, the body's being really protective and, and looking after you. It's just those norms that we're so used to, isn't it? So, um, you know, I loved that explanation. I think our body, I always say our body is the most um, magnificent healing machine. Mm. You actually doesn't need much. It needs sleep. Mm. It needs nourishing food. It needs love and uh, basically security. And we've got amazing homeostatic mechanisms in the body that stop cancer. We have cells growing all the time. Okay, that's but the body has something called apoptosis and other ways which stop cell growth. And it overnight when you sleep, its job is to go around, mop up every cell, goes to the heart, brain, and says, Don't need this, you're out of line, chuck it away. Yeah. But when you're not sleeping and when you have chronic stress, the body is there in fight or flight, making you keeping you alive and you're in survival mode. So then your immune defense system is completely on low alert because this job is to keep you alert. It thinks you're not going to survive a few years to get that disease. But the unfortunate um, news is that we're all in this mode of this chronic low-grade stress and chronic nervous system dysfunction. Mm. And unless we don't create awareness around that, there's no healing going to happen. There's We're going to be... Um, doomed for basically all kinds of physical and mental health illnesses unless we don't accept the impact of our lifestyles and all those fundamental health pillars and what they're doing to you even with the best hrt it's not going to work so i keep banging out about those things because i see women who take hrt and if they haven't addressed the sleep and the stress they will have very minimal improvement and they'll come to me and say, oh, but I'm still not feeling well. I'm not sleeping well. And then I'll do their blood levels and show them these beautiful estrogen levels. And I say, well, you have great estrogen levels, but your cortisol is through the roof. You're watching three hours of Instagram and Netflix before you're going to bed with ridiculous levels of blue light exposure. And your cortisol is through the roof. So get out there, get your sunshine before 10 a.m. to adjust your melatonin levels. No screens after 9 p.m need to start doing so and I said to a woman it's really interesting and I do this myself I say imagine you had no screens no telephones after 9 p.m they're like they don't know what to do with themselves mm. including me sometimes mm. there's such a heavy reliance uh, on these things so actually it's just a time of going back to self-care and it sounds really cliche but having a bath or listening to a nice music or you know doing kind of things that bring joy to you and connecting to yourself are all the lovely things that uh, will help you transition with or without HRT. 
So true. And I'm, I'm smiling as you're talking about what do people do after 9pm? And I'm asking that question because I'm asleep at 9pm. <laughs> and it's like 9pm, I'm usually up at 5, 5.30. But I know for me, I need that eight hours sleep. So, yeah. you know, after dark, after 9pm, yeah, it's lights out here at my house. <laughs> Well, I think the problem is I always say to women, we tend to eat quite early at 6, 6.30. And I say, if I don't go to bed by 9, 30, 10, then I would literally be sitting in front of Netflix eating popcorn. And I've mm-hmm. done that. So I know. So I'm not just telling women what to do. And I've had to get myself into a strict routine of putting the lights down, having a relaxing environment and making myself feel relaxed and sleepy so I can go to bed 10. But if I don't do that, and if I sat in front of the telly, then I could easily stay awake till midnight. And that's the vicious cycle, right? Yeah. Where um, then you start munching late. And we've all been there. You know, I'm, I've am i done that and I still do that on some Friday nights. But as a whole overall routine, I'm quite sleep obsessed, as my patients know. I'm so mm-hmm. obsessed. The 9 p.m. onwards or 8 p.m. onwards routine is I'm very pedantic because I think what you do for after your dinner in the evening is a predictor of your sleep and how you're going to feel the next day. Poor sleep is linked with increased appetite. Um, you know, it's just metabolically really negative impacts. It's a combination of things. So I'm not going to go about sleep. There's a whole talk just on sleep. Oh, there is. And we actually do a workshop around loving your sleep. And there's such a flow-on effect that, you know, if you're just getting bad sleep. And, and I keep bringing up, I've got this watch for Christmas. And what it does, is it tells me out of 100 how good my sleep was the day before. So much so that I came to work the other day and said, Matt, Nat. I got a 95 out of 100 for my sleep last night. How good is that? Like, you know. That's amazing. Yeah, and I sort of thought, well, if something, you know, um, a little app like that's going to help me get better sleep, I'm, I'm all for it. So, yeah, we, we love, we're very big on our sleep and, and just the ramifications that it has when it's not happening. Yeah. And, of course, if you're waking up with hot flushes, and, and this is, again, about functioning. So if you're someone who's waking up drenched, and a lot of women say, I feel like mm-hmm. someone's taking a bucket. Yeah, thrown it all over me, and I'm changing bed sheets in the middle of the night, and I'm doing that every hour. My partner is sleeping in the other room. I have the window wide open, and it's freezing. You know, so you see, that's not a way to live life for some. Yes, so that is exactly the woman who needs a bit of help because the estrogen will stop the hot flushes in five days, Mm. and all of a sudden they'll be sleeping. And if I can help someone sleep, I'm the happiest person. So I think you've got to to see. It's it's a it's an individual personalized approach, and you can't impose. I'm very pro HRT for women who need it, and women who don't need it, they don't need it. You know, Um, so I think you've got to have a personalized individual approach. But I I can't emphasize the importance of your fundamental health pillars. I wanted to quickly talk about testosterone before we end. I don't know if you want me to talk about that. Yes. estrogen and progesterone and in a lot of women just taking the estrogen will improve their libido um and so that sexual desire uh, intimacy and obviously libido is a big topic again i have a really good uh infographic on it you know things like some drugs can affect libido we know vaginal dryness can affect it so if you don't have any systemic symptoms like hot flushes nights or the mood disturbance but just have a bit of vaginal dryness then you can use local natural estrogen uh, pastries or creams available through your GP and that will improve the vaginal dryness so find out what's the cause of low libido is it because you haven't spent the whole month your husband or partner is in the other room because you're getting hot pressures every hour so what is the cause of it if you're finding that it's none of those and you've got persistent low libido um, then testosterone is licensed for that it's licensed for 
uh, HSDD, which is hyperactive sexual disorder. And essentially, we give female physiological dosages. The starting dose is normally five milligrams. We're very lucky in Australia, we have a TJ approved testosterone for women, and we have clinical trials and safety data for it. And I use that in women with very good uh, success. Their mm -hmm. fine libido improves. In some women, you do see improvement in their mood, their energy, cognitive function, and sleep. But those aren't um, those are not the reasons we would give it to them. And there aren't enough clinical trials to um, basically give it for that indication. So the indication is still persistent low libido. And if it's not improved with everything else, you've got to look at what's causing it. Mm. Um, it normally comes in a cream formulation. Um, and it's very safe to use. We do baseline bloods and we then just do follow up to make sure it's within physiological range and that's safely used on a daily basis. Um, so, you know, again, if you're finding the low libido is something that's impacting your, a lot of the patients say to me, you know, I love my partner, been married for or been with my partner for 20 years, uh, but I really feel, I just don't feel anything for him. And so if that's impacting your relationship, then yes bit of testosterone is something you try and you just try it for three to six months if there may no benefit then you stop it there's no harm in trying it men the starting dose is anything from 10 to 20 milligrams sometimes even higher so this is nowhere near that and before you even ask me what are the side effects <laughs> that women are worried about we're giving female physiological dose so there aren't any side effects with that but anytime you go over or some woman can accumulate we all have testosterone and believe it or not testosterone is the hormone that breaks down into estrogen so um it's it's an important hormone for our not just libido but actually there's some evidence to say it's really good for our brain health bone health and heart health but there's not enough studies done on that mm, in terms of the side effects if it's um increased levels or too much then you can get things like acne greasy skin um greasy hair some women you can get hair thinning um, you can get some sporadic hair growth, but that's, you know, normally not the case if they're giving in good normal physiological levels. Um, rarely, uh, if it's really excessive amount, you can get um, changes in behavior, being more aggressive and um, hoarse voice, which is I use it for eight years and I've never seen it. And that will probably only happen when you're using male doses for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And the reality is most of these women will have six monthly blood tests and then annual, so they'll be monitored for it. Um, but otherwise, you know, that's that's for a lot of the women is what they call the cherry on the cake or missing piece of the puzzle. Um, and again, I think it's looking at the individual woman and seeing what is it that she needs. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. And with the HRT, Fatima, is it just... Um... Would you just take estrogen or estrogen and progesterone to balance for the balance, or does it again is it a very individualized thing um, in relation to when you prescribe it? So, majority of women would have an intact uterus, so that's their womb, and we always give estrogen and progesterone together because estrogen thickens the lining and progesterone stops the lining from growing. Mm. And if you just took estrogen only, like we used to prescribe it in the nineteen sixties, there was an increased risk of uh, incidence of endometrial cancer and so it a lot of basically women were stopped uh, using it and it was being stopped it wasn't prescribed 
And then they realize, oh, we need to give progestogen. In. And this is why synthetic progestogens are used because synthetic progestogens are excellent at reducing bleeding. So they're very good at bleeding control, cycle control, and heavy bleeding, which is what you can get in the perimenopause. But of course, we know all of the stop growth in the lining of the womb, they're not great for breast tissue. So they're proliferative in the breast. So it's finding that balance. So all women need estrogen and progesterone together. If you've had a hysterectomy, which is removal of your uterus, then we don't need progestogen or progesterone. It's estrogen only. And testosterone can be given to any woman. It does not impact the lining of your womb. Mm. Beautiful. Mm. Such great information. And I think if I can wrap up, you know, what I'm really taking from our conversation is just the normalizing of using MHT as well as normalizing such symptoms as low libido and hot flushes. And the fact that, you know, everything that women experience, it flows on. So low libido flows on to relationships and that connection that women want. They still love their partner and want to be with their partner, as well as the flow on effect of hot flushes um, and the impact of low confidence and how that can lead to, you know, anxiety and the mental health concerns too. So, you know, I really just, it takes that sort of whole health perspective that everything that women are going through, it flows on to their physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health impacting them, but there's solutions and there's things that they can do. And what you've shared here is really just normalizing all of that and the ability for women to really come back to themselves and give them what they need so that they can continue to live their best life. And how many times do we hear, Lise, that that's the number one thing women want? I just want to live my best life. I just want to be happy in my own skin and be able to work and live as they desire. So I just, I love that as, I guess, a, a closing remark that just, yeah, normalizing these things and just giving giving women hope. Mm. I think also just remember that I think we underestimate the impact that perimenopause has on a relationship in women's lives. So the peak age of divorce for women in Australia is 40 to 45 and men is 45 to 50. And so you might not be getting hot flushes, but we know the perimenopause signs, the early signs will be uh, menstrual cycle disruption. So heavy periods, prolonged periods, flooding. Um, and that's when they'll start noticing a bit of mood lability and irritability and insomnia and fatigue and low libido. So, and, and because women don't have awareness, they think, oh, they, they, this is because of everything else. We're not connecting. We're actually, I think we don't connect the dots that the impact of our uh, reproductive or hormonal fluctuations have the impact that it has on our relationships and our partner and that it can lead to more kind of marital conflict and just general tolerance levels and things. And we all experience that before the PMS. We say a week before your period, we all get that throughout. But imagine feeling like that volatility all the time. Mm -hmm. And because the periods are irregular, women just don't know what's happening. So I think the more conversations we have say, actually, this is what's going on with your body. Recognize it, do something about it and get back to your basic normal, whatever that is for you. So you can start functioning your best. It just comes down to functioning and feeling. And it sounds like a cliche, your best, but just feeling like yourself mm. is what everyone says. They'll say, oh my God, for the first time I'm feeling more like myself. I had no idea who I was. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it just highlights the importance for education for not just the woman, but for the man and for the wider community so that everyone collectively can understand and have a broader awareness and acceptance. And, you know, let's keep 
you know nurturing these fantastic relationships that we've that we've had so but uh but yeah look fantastic conversation thank you Mm. again we really appreciate you coming back on our podcast and we know that listeners will get such a wealth of knowledge and insight from you Mm, i certainly have thank you it's always a pleasure i always love coming and speaking on your podcast because there's not many people that have this whole body approach and so it's it's a, such a lovely way to express and share our knowledge with women and what you're doing for women. And I think it's just having this open conversation so it resonates, even if you can help one and have a knock on effect where they can go and talk and say, actually, oh my God, I listened to this great podcast and it's completely normal what I'm feeling. And because a lot of them feel quite isolated. So no, keep up the great work. And uh, I look forward to being here again and listening to this episode. Thank you so much, Fatima. Thanks again for sharing your time with us, learning how you can be your best energetic self no matter what life stage you are going through. Be sure to contact us if any of this content resonates with you. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss out on any of our future episodes. See you next time.